They trade their stability for growth. Um, cities will very often take on uh, projects that financially make no sense in the long term, but in the short term provide them cash rewards and cash advantages. Podbn. Three, two, one. Here we go from the Play Normal Esports Studio. This is Podbn talking to people doing big things in Bloomington Normal. I have a very special guest today, Chuck Marone, the founder and CEO of Strong Towns. Chuck was so kind to take an hour out of his busy schedule to talk to us about some of the big issues in Bloomington Normal. For those of you who haven't heard of Chuck or Strong Towns, Strong Towns is an international movement that's dedicated to making communities across the U.S. and Canada financially strong and resilient. And um, most listeners are probably not too familiar with the Strong Towns movement, but I hope after this discussion you'll see why the message is really important, even if you're not a municipal politics geek like me. I want to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Play Normal Esports. It's a great place to host a podcast here in the Play Normal Esports studio, and also a wonderful place to come and bring your kids to play Fortnite and Apex Online, Smash Brothers, and all kinds of games on their decked out PCs here. They got comfy chairs, they got big headphones, they got a snack bar, and everything you'd need to have a great afternoon of gaming. So come check out Play Normal Esports on El Dorado Road. Um, and with that, I'll welcome Chuck Marone to Pot BN. How you doing, Chuck? Hey, doing fantastic. It's a beautiful day here in Minnesota, and it's nice to chat with you. Yeah, thanks again for doing this. Uh, you bet. I know you're, st- I know you're starting a book so- tour soon, so I appreciate your time. Yeah, I got a book coming out October 1st and, uh, things are starting to get crazy. The, the final drafts are into the publisher and, uh, it's real, man. Yeah. Well, I'll give you a chance at the end to talk a little bit about, um, you know, the, the book and what you guys are, what you're doing to travel around and things like that. Um, I have like four to five hot topics in Bloomington normal. I sent you some info prior to this call. So I'd like to dive into those shortly, but first, would you just uh, go through like your elevator pitch for what strong towns is all about, what it stands for, maybe explain some of your fundamental topics, like what you mean by incremental incremental growth or other things that are real important. Yeah. Strong towns, uh, strong towns is a movement of people trying to build cities, places uh, differently. Uh, I'm a civil engineer and I'm a land use planner. And I started a blog back in 2008 to talk about why our cities were going broke. Uh, This was in the midst of the housing crisis and uh, the economic upheaval. And while it hadn't hit cities yet, it it was clear that even during the growth, city budgets were stretched thin. and, And, you know, during the bubble and the boom, everybody didn't have any money. And I said, how can this possibly be? I started writing about that. I started writing about uh, the, the trade-offs that cities go through when they trade growth, uh, they trade their stability for growth. Um, cities will very often take on uh, projects that financially make no sense in the long term, but in the short term provide them cash rewards and cash advantages. Uh, I was a big part of doing projects like that as an engineer, as a planner. They were very normal. They're very normal part of what we do. Uh, and I just started to recognize kind of the Ponzi scheme nature of these. I started to look at different alternatives. Uh, why, how, how can we uh, mature our cities? How can we evolve our places so that they don't go broke, so that they become financially strong and resilient, so that they help people live prosperous lives? And what I found is that there's a ton of wisdom in the traditional development pattern, the way we built cities historically for thousands of years. Uh, that process is a is a emergent from kind of an evolutionary set of uh, of conditions. Humans tried things and and they figured out what worked and they copied those and expanded on them. When we look back, we see development patterns that are largely in, in our viewpoint based around people walking. Uh, but from a historical viewpoint, based around essentially hum- humans and, and human habitat. And so I started to explore that and the financial implications of that and, and came up with an approach that is based on uh, traditional, not only traditional principles of development, uh, but traditional uh, approaches, uh, in the incremental nature of the way those places evolved and changed over time. 
and and essentially, how do we adapt with today's technology, today's understandings, today's sensibilities, uh, to a development pattern not based solely on growth and efficiency, uh, but based on uh, stability, quality of life, prosperity, and and places that will endure uh, and and become better over time. So that's the strong towns approach, and uh, we are um, uh, as a as an organization are a, a media group. Uh, we have uh, chosen to do our advocacy as as me- through media. So we uh, publish two, three articles a day. We've got three different podcasts we do every week. I travel around the country giving talks and lectures and, and walking tours and workshops to help people understand why their cities struggle and, and what they can do differently. Uh, so that's essentially Strong Towns. A little uh, That was a longer elevator ride, but that's basically what we do. That works. Going up to going up to a higher floor there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that, uh, no, I think, uh, what captures me so much about what you do is what I love about planning and, and zoning and just municipal politics in general, but it's just these things that we take for granted about the spaces that we live in. It's just the, it's the feel of them. It's how we're places we're inclined to walk to places we're inclined to drive to, um, you know, what activities your children choose to do and all these things that just seem like the environments that just are how they are. There's, there's people making decisions about the spaces that we live in and we, we can't be, naive and just think that those things are going to, um, you know, work out if we, uh, if we just leave them to, you know, the powers that, that be, I guess, uh, well, I, you I, leave I, it to uh, someone who wants to promote a, uh, you know, auto centric, uh, way of living, and then you're going to get auto centric towns, for example. Right. right? I, I think that is an important insight and I'm going to add on to it just a little bit. I think cities of the past cities, if we look pre-depression cities, they were essentially co-created uh, by the people who lived there. Uh, there was not this kind of professional class of people who built and designed those cities. They were really co-creations with a, a much kind of broader class and, and group of people who would not only build and maintain streets, but build the buildings and, and the businesses and, and everything else that was involved in it. Um, today, largely due to efficiency, uh, we have outsourced a lot of that co-creation to professionals, engineers and planners like myself, uh, investors who build franchise restaurants and uh, big box stores, uh, home builders who you know will build hundreds of homes at, at one time. Um, this has been more efficient and it's allowed us to create a lot of growth very quickly. Um, but one of the things that happens is that the values of those different specialties come to dominate our places. And so the values that we have as individuals kind of become subservient to the values of, you know, where's this curb cut going to be? Well, it's got to be here because we got to move traffic and we got to have parking and we got to, you know, have uh, turnover in this place. And there, there are all these other implicit values that come to the fore um, that are very disorienting and, and really at odds with the way we live as humans. And I, I think that was a that was a big breakthrough for me when I understood that you know, engineers, my profession was not a value-free profession. It was a profession with lots of values and those values now dominate our public spaces. And and that's not uh, consistent with the values of the people who actually inhabit those spaces. Yeah. So um, I think when we turn to the specifics now of what's going on in Bloomington Normal, I think then we will definitely see how those, you know, those values are conflicting then with our, you know what our goals are as the people who live here. Um, so if it's all right with you, uh, we can talk about Bloomington Normal a little yeah. bit. And which, um, to which I, I've been. I, I think it's important to note that I'm, you know, I spent a ton of time there, but I spent a couple of days there. I've been, uh, so I've been, uh, I'm not speaking blindly about Bloomington. Sure. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, we're a pretty typical Midwestern town though. So I think um, I'm glad that you've been here. So you got a sense of where we are, but when I read a lot of your writings, I feel like you're directly talking about a lot of things that are going on here. Um, like for example, we expanded hugely up until the financial crisis in 2008, 2009, uh, lots of sprawl. Um, there's one place in particular called Ireland Grove that's, um, out east of town where I think it's like a couple miles of just like, we stretch the city boundaries just down this one road and there's a little 
a whole bunch of houses developed out there. And, um, and so with that Bloomington and normal, the first topic I'd like to talk about is our comprehensive plan. So one of the things we've tried to do in these last 10 years here is to, to focus on infill. And so we've done this sprawl. We've built these big, um, subdivisions sometimes with unincorporated land in the middle of it or incorporated land, but that's just a, you know, a, a field or a vacant lot. And we've been trying to focus on building up those spaces in the middle there. And with that to increase connectivity and walkability for all segments of all the areas of our towns. So uh, I assume we're not alone in having these goals. And I was interested to hear your thought on a, if those are good goals, you know, to have and be, as we start to engage in those, uh, how have you seen them be done well and how have you seen them be done not well? I, I think that in general, these are good goals. Yes. I think this, the, the, the devil's in the details. And I think the intentions too, uh, of how we do some of these things are very important. Um, these would not be my goals or these would not be the goals that I would have for a city like normal or for, for my own town. Um, even though I, I, I think I get what people are getting at. Um, and here's why, if we look at the, the post-war development pattern, the thing that most distinguishes it from the pre-war development pattern is not the automobile. The automobile is a big deal, but you can go to other parts of the world where they have uh, incorporated the automobile into more traditional development approaches and been just fine with it. I, I don't think it was inevitable because we developed this technology of the automobile that we would build cities the way we do. The, the primary difference is that today we build things all at once and we build them to a finished state. Prior to the Great Depression, everything was built, homes, uh, neighborhoods, cities, everything was built on a continuum of improvement with incremental change. Nobody ever built a single-family home in the past thinking it would always and forevermore be a single-family home. Nobody would build a commercial business and anticipate that it would always be like a one-story little commercial business. The, the idea was everything that we built would evolve, change, adapt over time, kind of the way a natural ecosystem does. Today, we build things all at once, and we build them to a finished state. So when we build a, a strip mall, it's done. When we build a single-family home development, it's done. And so a lot of times when planners uh, and, and others talk about things like infill, what they're really talking about is going back into uh, these places that have been built to a finished state in their minds and filling in gaps, things that weren't well, th things that weren't developed before, the couple odd lots that didn't work out, uh, you know, the, 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 the runt of the litter place in a sense that nobody wanted to build on. Let, let's get something going there. And while I think that there's some logic to that, uh, that still doesn't get to the heart of what the conundrum is or what the, the issue that we're dealing with is that these neighborhoods are, in a sense, stagnating. And yes, going in and, and making better use of the properties that's there is, is going to be very helpful. Uh, but what really needs to ultimately happen is that uh, infill needs to also include single-family homes uh, becoming more intense and turning into single family homes with accessory apartments and single family homes with, uh, turned into a duplex, uh, duplexes need to evolve and adapt so that ultimately over time they become three and four unit structures, uh, commercial buildings that are strip malls need to evolve and adapt so that they become two story and three story and four story buildings. Uh, if that's what we mean by infill, then I, I think we're talking about the right thing. If what we mean is keeping and also the, mixing, oh mixing yeah, residential and commercial too, right? I, I think this is all part of the overall adaptation in, in time. Is that uh, we need to become far more flexible on these things than what our, our rigid kind of post-war zoning was meant to do. Uh, let me let me just summarize it this way: um, post World War II, we create a development pattern that was specifically designed to generate growth in our economy. Um, we, we had just gotten out of the depression. We've just gotten out of world war II, And the biggest fear amongst policymakers that we would slide right back into economic depression. And, and, and this would be a really bad thing. What we did instead 
is we created a development model that was designed to create macroeconomic growth rapidly and continuously uh, and have it be spread as widely, have the, the kind of the fruits of that be spread as widely as possible. Um, right now, that model is not helping us. And what we need now is a model that will actually mature those investments, make those growth investments more productive, get more value out of each of them, basically squeeze more return out of all out of basically 70, 80 years of public investment. And that's a very different mindset. It's one that takes the notion of infill and, you know, mixed use and walkability and all these things and doesn't look at it as a way to generate growth, but looks at it as a way to squeeze more value and more productivity out of that which has been already built. Yeah, so interesting. So uh, a recent thing that we just finished is there was a plot of land that was, um, I think there was a school to the north of it, the north of it, airport to the south of it, hotel on one side of it, cemetery across the street on the other side. It was just like an empty field. And so in the for the sake of infill, then we took that and have built several commercial structures that I would consider to be use specific. So it's a, you know, a restaurant specifically designed, tailored for just use as that restaurant. And then some medical facilities that, um, you know, are just used for are you know, designed for use as medical facilities. And, um, what I'm hearing you saying is perhaps a, that, that seems to be just more of the same, but perhaps just in a, like a different location. Yeah. So no, maybe totally. If we had made building, like if that was some residential, some commercial, or if those were structures that were could be repurposed and built upon with time instead of now being built to the finished state and put behind glass, then um, we're, we're not just adding to the, the current problem that we have. Am, am I applying I, that to that situation? No, totally. Right. And I would go a step further. I think one of the important implications of the analysis that we've done at Strong Towns is that we have built, uh, th there might be some modest uh, tweaks to this around the edges, but we've essentially built every road that's going to be built. We, we've built every street, every bit of sidewalk. We've built every length of pipe that we're ever going to build. Anyone who is expanding their infrastructure systems today has no uh, sense of uh, the liability that they're carrying. Cities do not have the financial capacity to maintain everything that they've already built. And so growth for us, or uh, let's say, you know, thickening up and productivity for us is not ever going to come or it can't come in the future from adding more infrastructure. It has to come from making better use of what we have. Uh, and so, you know, I think the implication beyond that is we're actually going to shrink some of these systems. We're actually going to have less road, less street, less sidewalk, less pipe. Um, we're going to have fewer of these systems uh, as we go. And so in a sense, like committing to, particularly in, your, in the example, uh, you know, out on the far edges of the city, um, those to me are, are really bad places to be spending your money right now. You just had a... Um podcast recently with Doug McGowan from Memphis, where he talked about their efforts to shrink down their system and to look at some of the, like to de-annex some of the areas that they had there, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, Memphis, is a, a Memphis is a great example because when we look at like the story of Detroit, uh, we, 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 we often say Detroit was this great city and it was going in the right direction. And then the auto manufacturing went to Mexico or South Korea, and then everything fell apart. And the, the, the story of Detroit is often simplified down to too much area, not enough people, or too much stuff, not enough people. Um, when you go to Memphis, Memphis is uh, two-thirds the population of Detroit, so smaller in population, but double the size, double the land area. So whatever narrative you're applying to Detroit – uh, you can apply in spades to Memphis. And uh, yeah, they've come to recognize that they actually need to go out and shrink their de-annexing property. They're making their city intentionally smaller uh, so that they can have something that is more viable, uh, you know, for their, for their residents.
Yeah, it's pretty interesting. I haven't had a chance to go check out our densities in comparison to the numbers I heard on there, but it's on my to-do list. I'm, I'm pretty interested to see how we look. I think you'd be surprised because most, you know, Detroit uh, is often spoken of as this, you know, horrible situation of a place being upside down population area wise. And they're actually more dense than most Midwestern cities. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Let's move on to another topic that's on our minds, which is downtown revitalization. And I think Bloomington and Normal are a very interesting case study in this because here we are, sister cities. Um, sometimes we're so close, sometimes you don't even know which, whether you're in the city or the town. But the as far as the downtowns, there's been very different paths we've taken over the last 20 years with Normal doing huge amounts of um, investment, uh, renaming their downtown to Uptown, putting a lot of, uh, you know, redoing all the infrastructure, funding a lot of, through private and public funding and some tax incentives, creating some very large structures, a big combined town hall, train station, bus station, parking garage, two hotels, high-end apartments, um, retail on the bottom, a new like central uh, roundabout with the water space in the middle that families and you know, kids can play in. They have concerts there. So, uh, says I went to school in normal uh, about uh, went to college there and the change even since I've been there in the last 15 years has been pretty incredible you contrast that with Bloomington where we've tried to get some momentum going for investment and changes there but nothing really huge to speak of during uh, during those years past 10 years or so, there was a task force that was put together for some recommendations that got bogged down by, uh, by some of the details of it. Um, but, uh, there's, you know, that's kind of remains a sore spot for Bloomington. And I'm, I'm kind of wondering, like, they, they seem like the two extreme ends of the spectrum of how you can revitalize a downtown. You know, one yes. one One's knock it down and build a new one. <laughs> and the other ones, you know, basically don't do anything and let it be. So, um, I, what do you? What would you suggest as our mindset as we go about these revitalization conversations? Is there a middle ground here that we should be looking at? Um, I don't know if I would say a middle ground. I it's it's interesting to me because Normal has brought in some really super intelligent people to help guide them and and provide some advice and and I think you know they have uh, taken a route and I'm gonna I'm gonna use a, a another city in Indiana, um, you know Carmel, Indiana which I have called the Enron of cities. Um, and I say that very intentionally because I think Enron for a long time looked like the darling company. And then at one point was exposed for the, you know, the financial fraud that it was. I, I kind of feel like that is Carmel in a sense. Um, you know, normal has a little bit that feel for me as well. I'm not as intimate with their financials as I am with Carmel and I've not spent as much time there as I did in Carmel, but there's a lot of it that feels very like instant, uh, instant success, you know, a, a little like a, a bodybuilder taking steroids, like here we are, everything's shiny and new. And, uh, it, it, it gives me great pause. Uh, on the other hand, um, when you go to over to Bloomington, I, I think what you have is, uh, you have the same kind of a, attempt at the same mindset, um, which I'm just going to call like the front row kind of people, like the insider mindset. Uh, without, you know, a consensus to, to do what normal has done. Uh, I, I think a lot of times as professionals, I'm an engineer and a planner, uh, as city officials, as city administrators, as economic development people, what we do is we kind of orient ourselves around the things that we can uh, accomplish in our comfort zone. Um, there are lots of grants. Uh, there are lots of loans. Uh, there's lots of consulting fees to be paid. Uh, for doing things the way that normal has done them. Uh, when we look at that model, there's a lot of, uh, it, it's, let me put it this way, it's not a very far stretch from our efficiency-based growth model uh, to transform ourselves and to undertake projects like that. That is not the Strong Downs approach. Let me give you the Strong Downs approach just in a nutshell, it, in terms of like downtown revitalization. Number one is to recognize that downtown, pound for pound, is your most financially productive part of your city. It might not be the biggest taxpayer individually, but we've modeled, along with Urban 3, this group out of Asheville, North Carolina, 
hundreds and hundreds of cities across this continent. And over and over again, it's the downtown that is the store of wealth, the great amount of financial productivity. It, it, it is just a financial powerhouse. What downtowns need today more than anything is basic maintenance, not go in and, and transform it overnight, not go in and spend millions of dollars putting in decorative sidewalks and decorative lights and, you know, bling the whole thing out. Just go out and maintain the thing. Be competent in maintaining it. Pick up the trash, sweep the sidewalks, trim the trees, put some paint out, fix the cracked sidewalks, fix the cracked curbs, fill the potholes. Just do basic maintenance. And you, you don't need to spend billions. You don't need to borrow billion, millions uh, to make something like that happen. Just go do the work. I think when we look at those places, the second part is a commitment to kind of addressing people's needs incrementally. Uh, downtown, successful downtowns, and the most successful ones are part of ecosystems that involve the surrounding neighborhoods. The places that I've seen be more success, most successful look at their downtowns as part of a broader uh, human habitat. And the thing that we can do to make that the most successful is to connect it. Uh, if people six blocks from your downtown find it easier to walk downtown than they do to drive downtown, you've accomplished something huge. Uh, if they find that to be more inviting, more delightful, more pleasant, uh, the thing that they want to do, uh, your downtown is going to really prosper. When we focus on those surrounding neighborhoods, incrementally growing them and incrementally connecting them to a well-maintained downtown – we're doing downtown revitalization with pennies on the dollar, and we're seeing huge, huge results from that. Yeah, and I would think that the the decorations and the you know decorative sidewalks or public art or whatever that can be facilitated simply by not prohibiting it or by having some sort of initiative for free, right? I mean, the city can say like it's okay if 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 the downtown business owners want to paint in front of their sidewalks and. They can do that. Um, now you, now you're getting in. Yeah, you're getting the co-creation part again, and I think I think this is the mentality of uh, of local government really, because a lot of times in local government we feel like uh, the people in the community are our customers. They pay us, and we provide them a service, and we've almost adopted a, a business mentality. And really, cities are not that way. That's not the way cities work. Cities are co-creations of people, uh, both inside and outside of government. We're working together to get something done. Uh, business owners in a downtown can be a huge part of that revitalization. And, and we have to treat them like the adults and the co-creators that they are uh, and, and figure out you know how we're going to work together to get those things done. There, there's a ton of capacity there. We push to the sidelines uh, when we adopt the customer service model of local government. Yeah, I know... Um... Parking is also a big topic of conversation with downtowns as well, too, like where you charge for it, where you don't charge for it. Um, right now, we have uh, free parking on the sides of our streets in our downtown, and then we've got some paid parking lots. Um, any thoughts on that particular issue? Well, for a city the size of, of Bloomington and the size of Normal, um, the, the the path to success has far less to do with parking than it does with the neighborhoods surrounding the core downtown. If there is a geographic advantage to living three blocks or four blocks from the core downtown, now you're making that property more valuable while you're make, making your downtown more valuable. And that's not a parking strategy. The parking strategy means there's no geographic advantage to living three blocks away, you might as well live three miles away because you just drive and park downtown. Mm. No downtown has ever built their way to prosperity through parking. Uh, and, and so to me, you're, you're, you've said, you know, where should we be charging for parking? Uh, where should we not? Well, the answer is like we should be charging for parking everywhere. There should be a price for parking everywhere in your downtown. And as that price grows and grows and grows, more people are willing to pay a higher price to be there, you know you're successful. If you have to have free parking, if you have to have uh, giveaways like that, you're, you're doing something wrong. You're, you're, you're doing something wrong and more parking will not solve what you're doing wrong. 
Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense to your point of if it's an area that is well-maintained, that's easy to, it's attractive. And also the people are you know drawn to it and it's not, it's connected and not hard to walk to then, or even if it is hard to walk to, but it's an attractive place that people want to get, they will get there. I, I say a lot that the, if you park on one end of our mall and walk to the under end of our mall, you've walked far, far greater distance than you would to get any place in our downtown totally. uh, from, from our parking garage. But yet people have this perception of like, oh, the garage is so far away and I can't possibly get there. So there, there's something psychologically that's making them not want to make that walk to that place, right? Right. Well, and I'm, I'm going to Asheville, North Carolina this weekend. We're having a staff retreat there. And I've been to Asheville many times. If you live within 10 blocks of the core downtown, you rarely drive because driving is expensive. It's slow. Uh, parking is expensive. Um, you walk and you walk because the walk is very nice. They've paid a lot of attention to detail of the comfort of those places. Uh, they close gaps. They make the walk as, as easy as they can. They've kind of reduced the friction of that walk. And what has happened as a result is that the downtown has boomed. The downtown is, you know, you can go to the downtown. You can drive there from way out. Uh, you pay to park and people do that because the downtown's so great. Um, but the other side effect of having the great downtown uh, focused on people is that that house 10 blocks away from the core downtown has increased in price by about 10 times in the last you know, decade. It's now worth millions of dollars where it would have been a uh, very low, low value, uh, you know, two decades ago. That, that transformation is all because the person living in that house is paying a premium to be near the core downtown and in a sense have almost an exclusive access to that. That is, is very costly if you're going to drive and be part of it it's the inverse of how we think about parking today. We think if we can just make parking as easy and affordable as possible, if we can make our streets as wide and, and, and easy to be driven as possible, then we'll capture this huge broad market. And the reality is the, the value for the city, the value for the community, the value for the overall prosperity is not in a volume business. It's in a quality business and a return business. So, you're better off having, you know, everything within 10 blocks of your downtown go up by 5%, 10%, 20% a year uh, than you are generating 5%, 10%, 20% more a year transactions from people who would drive in from the surrounding area. Those people cost you a ton and you're not going to get that kind of growth anyway. Yeah. Fascinating. Love it. Yeah. I'm very curious to see what normal looks like. Um, in 15 more years to see if, uh, you know, to see if that momentum keeps going. Cause like you mentioned Carmel, I mean, they keep it, it just, it keeps going somehow. They keep, <laughs> they keep moving along. Well, um, it's, it's all first life cycle stuff. I mean, I think if you look at downtown normal, what, what is in place now, and there's the same thing that's in place in Carmel is you build something, you build it to a finished state and the budget that you have is going towards new growth. It's not going towards, in, you know, intensive maintenance. And so what tends to happen is that you get a generation where it looks good, it functions well, it's kind of the cool, hip, new place to be, and then you run into the maintenance bill and you don't have the money because the money's committed to new growth or the money's committed to all these other maintenance things you promised to do as you're trying to get new growth. And so what you have is you have to have the place fall apart enough to where you can justify raising taxes, taking on more debt and doing some big kind of, you know, one-off revitalization project. That's the pattern of post-war development. It is uh, rapid growth, stagnation and decline, and then subsidized uh, or, or, or debt-induced redevelopment. And that's not the natural pattern of cities. The natural pattern of cities is to have incremental growth, increasing underlying land values, where redevelopment and that co-creation kind of mentality happens automatically. It happens as a part of a market-based system. Mm-hmm. 
we had the pleasure of having Chad Beaver on one of our early episodes, and on that episode, he mentioned that he was working on a birthday cake-flavored beer. I thought that sounded pretty incredible, and wasn't sure if he was really going to pull that off. But what happened when I was walking through Hy-Vee this weekend, lo and behold, there it was, a birthday cake-flavored stout. That illustrates the ingenuity that Chad brings to his brewing. You can check out more fancy beers at his tap room and at a lot of other places around town like 8-Bit Arcade, the Bakery and Pickle Bar, Braze, Fat Jack's, Green Top Grocery, Fire Tuck, and lots of other places. Little Beaver Brewery, sponsor of PodBN. It actually leads really nicely to the next topic I wanted to talk to you about, which deals with um, public transit. So we've got two issues with public transit going on. Um, I'll start with the issue of the downtown Bloomington transfer station. So um, as I explained before, Normal recently took out a debt and built a nice you know, uh, transfer station. They got their train station in there, bus station, uh, parking lot combined with their town hall. And Bloomington bus, the, the downtown Bloomington bus transfer station is just a street where the buses park. So um, there's no building there. There's no covered structure even. Uh, also, the street's not designed for this. So the, the street gets damaged by those big buses being there so frequently. And um, so our our Connect Transit board is trying to look into how to build a transfer station. But I I worry when I hear them talking about, oh, well, there's there's state and federal grants to to get this. So, you know, my reaction is, oh, you mean the broke state of Illinois and the broke federal government is going to give us money to do these things? Like that's, um, amen. You know, yeah. <laughs> so you know, but barring those grants, then you know, what are we going to take out more debt to do it? So, I, I've been, I, I've been, uh, you know, negative about those options, but I have trouble thinking about like, what is that next incremental step to try to make this, this better? Is it, is it like, let's, let's build some sort of reasonable, um, affordable, like covered structure at the minimum to see how that pans out and then see where it goes from there. Um, any thoughts you have on that particular issue? Yeah. Like a ridiculous number. Uh, right. let, let's so transit right now is something that we just collectively as a nation don't do well. And, and we don't do well because it, it is uh, an afterthought to our transportation system. First of all, second of all, we think of it primarily as poor people's transportation. So it's, it's not taken seriously as a public policy issue. And then third, we, we treat it in the same way that we have come to treat our auto-based infrastructure, which, by the way, if you look at any funding stream, not just in broke Illinois, but anywhere in the country, uh, we're completely insolvent and underwater in our highway funding system. We don't have anywhere near the money we need to maintain the stuff we've built. That That is a perpetual problem from the federal government down to every state government, down to every local government. Road funding, road funding, road funding is like, we're, it's a tragedy. So why would we copy that? He, let's talk about what a successful model looks like and then figure out how you would do this in a place like normal. If we go to Japan or China or Europe, places where they have made great transit investments that function well, are, are high-end, pay off well, and that we all envy here in the U.S., they use a system that's very simple and actually very American. Uh, they use a, a process of value capture. The idea is if we were going to build a new transfer station in downtown Normal, so, you know, all these buses are going to come in, they're going to transfer in one place, there's going to be all this activity in one place. What we recognize about that is uh, that place is going to be really, really, the land around that, if we design it right, if we do it right, should be really, really valuable when we're done. Um, it should be really, I mean, we're, we're talking about bringing thousands of patrons, thousands of customers, thousands of people. We're talking about having it be connected to all these things. So, what, you know, people could live there and get to all these places without having own a car. It's a tremendous, tremendous asset. What we should have done and, uh, you know, is one of two things. And this is what they would have done in Japan. They would have gone and bought all the land around that. They would have gone out, uh, you know, up, up many, many, many blocks and purchased all the land around it before they built it. And then they would have built it. And then they would have gone and sold all the land afterward. 
And why would you do that? Because you just made a transformative investment that raised the value of that land. And now you take the increment of increase that you've created and you use that to pay for what you just built. So you're not taking on any debt. You're not burdening the transit system with having to pay capital costs over time. You're not doing any of that. The fees now can pay for the operation and maintenance, which is very easy to do. And you run this very profitable system. And oh, by the way, everybody who just bought the land around it is induced to make really good use out of it. That's in America, we just reject that. We say you can't do that. Even though if you look, that's how every Midwestern city was ever built. That's what the railroad stations did. That's what the railroad companies did. They went out and bought the land. They put in the town. They sold the land to speculators around the stop, and they used that money to pay for all the infrastructure. Here's the way we could do this. That's very American. And we refuse to do it because uh, it's just not how we think about transportation. Every time we build a transit hub, every time we build a new interchange, a frontage road, uh, a highway widening, we have this process called the direct assessment process. We can go out and we can say, this process is improving your property by X amount. We are going to tax you X amount, uh, and we're going to use that money to pay the capital costs on this new project. Um, that way, we don't have debt. Uh, that way, we uh, you know, are not basically handing out money to speculators and millionaires uh, you know, from, from the public trough. Um, that process uh, will also uh, b- basically put the brakes on a lot of projects right now that are not very good projects. And the ones that go forward will induce us to do a better job designing so that we get more value, more return out of the investments we do. Um, I've seen the the normal bus uh, transfer station. Um, it's not well designed to interface with the surrounding community. It's a utilitarian building. It's it's a huge investment that's you're not getting as much bang for the buck as you should be. And largely that's because of design. It's also a function of how it was financed. And I think until we get serious about financing things uh, with value capture, uh, we're we're gonna continue to have underperforming transit in bad places. Mm. Yeah, it's an interesting opportunity for Bloomington because um, Bloomington, the city, does own a lot of spots of land downtown where that could go. Um, but the idea, I've never heard presented the idea that we would buy more land around it uh, prior to building it as a way of funding it. But thinking about one of the sites that they're talking about, like that does seem plausible to do. And then that also then, if I understand you right, then that guides your the way you develop that building because you want it to be connected to provide maximum value for the areas around it uh, as opposed to maybe like one entrance in and out that's um, difficult for pedestrians to you know get in and out of. They're, they're dodging around cars and buses and things like that. So, um, yeah, yeah. That, that's exactly it. I mean, right now, the what, what we tend to do is we tend to make all these different siloed kind of things. So the transit people will hire their consultants to design their transit station. And that's in complete isolation from the street design people who will, you know, have their own consultants to design the street. And that's in complete isolation from the planning people who will do the land use around that. And the economic development people who will subsidize the new businesses coming in. Yeah. The the model we have right now is very efficient. It's just not well integrated and it doesn't have the the right kind of base values. The base value today is growth. The base value should be wealth creation. And yeah. wealth creation is is a very kind of multifaceted dynamic kind of of objective that is not captured by growth, which is actually very easy. It, if you're willing to borrow a ton of money, you can always experience growth. That's our macroeconomic story. You know, right now our economy is growing. Uh, it's actually growing not not in percentage terms, but in real terms, dollar terms. Uh, our economy is, uh, you know, bigger next this year than it was last year. But it's bigger by less than the amount of debt we're taking on. Mm-hmm. So we're taking on a dollar of, of federal debt and we get 85% 85 cents of economic growth 
at the federal level. That, that's a, that we could do that indefinitely as long as we can take on debt. There's no limit. Well, if you're a city, you've got a limit. You know, Maybe the federal government can take on endless debt. Maybe they can't. That's something economists can debate. I can tell you what, Bloomington can't. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a limit for Bloomington, and it's going to be a hard limit. Um, there's a limit for Illinois, and and you're experiencing it now. Um, you know, you can't do that. So you've got to focus not on growth. You've got to focus on wealth creation. And uh, the, the the transit kind of investments give you the best opportunity to do that. But you've got to be serious about it. Yeah. Um, so uh, another thing that we're talking about, kind of wondering how this connects here that's dealing with our transit system is how we can be more nimble and agile when it comes to changing our routes and changing our fares. Um, the Connect Transit Board recently voted to change one of the routes. There were two routes that were um, kind of paralleling each other, and they were looking at ridership numbers and thought, you know, if we collapse these together, uh, can save some money, and um, we can try to be, you know, better off financially. And this has caused just a ton of uproar in the community. You know, any their you know, group has formed uh, int- uh, what would I call them? A uh, an interest group has formed called Citizens to Ensure Fair Transit that are against any sort of you know rate uh, increases or fair, uh, I mean, or route changes reductions. Um, but the the Connect Transit system has to be able to look at the data of where riders are and where they need to be and to look at their financials and try to balance these things around. So there's been some kind of expectation that's not been set properly with the community. Um, I assume we're not alone in this. Um, totally. what do you think's, what do you think's really lying at the core of this, this discontent? Uh, I, I think what lies at the core of it is that we're trying to do, um, we're, 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 we're trying to do things with transit that transit is not good at doing. Um, we, we have created a development pattern that requires a huge financial ante to participate in. You have to own a vehicle to, to participate in our society today. Um, a vehicle is going to cost you eight to $9,000 a year to keep, insure, maintain, uh, fill up a gas. Um, if you're a family and you've got two uh, people in your household who are working age, uh, you have to have two vehicles. So you're spending, you know, sixteen to sixteen to eighteen thousand dollars a year. Um, it, it, I don't know what the median household income is in uh, in Bloomington or normal, but I'm guessing that's a sizable amount of the of the median household income. And so we've provided this huge, we've required this huge ante just to participate. What what then happens is that people who can't meet that ante wind up being the afterthought in our transit system. And they wind up being served by a system that, you know, quite frankly, is all they have. Um, but if you commit yourself to actually going out and experiencing transit the way that they do, uh, it's wholly despotic. It's wholly inadequate. It, it requires them to spend hours and hours uh, you know, being shuttled around to places that don't make any sense. Um, the cities that have done this well have recognized this fundamental imbalance, and they've said transit is going to be a service. It's going to be a service that we're going to do well. We're going to focus on ridership more than coverage area, and we're going to focus on uh, reliable, frequent service. Jarrett Walker wrote a book called Human Transit, and I think his insights are the best uh, on this, uh, if you look at a city like Houston, where Jarrett uh, and, and and his thinking were very dominant in reimagining that system, uh, they took the same resources they have today, and they merely deployed them in a different way uh, to to create, in a sense, a web of coverage uh, where they would have frequent service and um, and predictable service. Um, but a, a little bit smaller coverage area. And what they found is that they can be within a, a reasonable walking distance of, of almost everybody in the city of Houston. And you can get on the system in a very reliable, efficient way, uh, travel this hub and spoke kind of system and uh, and get where you need to go in a quick period of time. They have found not just uh, increased ridership amongst 
what they would call like their captured group, the group that has to use transit. But they've seen success in a broader support for transit among people who are not captured riders, people who can choose transit or choose to drive. And to me, that's the hallmark of a system moving in the right direction is if people voluntarily want to use it because it's easier and better. I would study Jarrett Walker's work. I think he's the get the best insights on this of anyone I've heard. Okay. I mean, it kind of goes back to that once and done mentality, though, that people are used to in their cities. It's like, okay, the city is made. The streets haven't changed. Nothing, none of the big places I'm trying to go to have changed. Those are all done, right? So my transit system should be done. And it, uh, you know, I, I don't want that. I don't want that changing. I've, I've got things figured out. Um, but they're, yeah. they're really not being served very well by the the current system because, like you said, I, I, I tried once to take the bus to work. It's a 15-minute drive here. It would have taken me 45 minutes on the bus because I had to wait for a connection. It doesn't make, it doesn't, right. it doesn't make sense for me as someone who could afford a car. Um, but if you're like, like most places too, maybe the connection doesn't show up. I mean, there's a reliability problem. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Th- these are these are huge systematic problems that, uh, that most cities are dealing with, and I think it, I think it stems largely from not necessarily the the like build it and forget it mentality, but the the idea that this is a, um, just a a poor man's version of of automobiles. You know, mm. if if we could. If we get everybody a car, that would be best. And if not, we'll throw this bus out there and like, you know, you got something, so stop complaining. And it's, it's not a dedication to building a place. I I always tell transit advocates, people who want great transit, I tell them, if you want great transit, you got to build great places, great places, uh, transit connects and serves well. And transit is really viable and important in good places. If you've got a bad place, a dispersed place, a place that's not financially viable or functional, um, you're never going to serve that well with transit. I mean, there is no way to do it. If you want great transit, you got to build a great place. You got to start there. Yeah, it's a, it's a symptom, not a um, yeah, yeah, not a cause. Yeah, that, I've even heard one of the city council candidates say that they want to a uh, city that had no transit system and they just funded. Um, like Uber rides essentially for low income people. And they're like, okay, so, you know, these, the people that we need to get places, they have cars now. So they're, they're taken care of. And um, that's definitely viewing those two as interchangeable, right? Yes. And I, I think that, and let me just say this, and this might be a little bit provocative, might make people mad at me who are big transit advocates. But if, if you're going to do halfway, if you're going to do junky transit, um, you know, and make person who would have a 15 minute ride, ride for 45 minutes and, and have that be okay. Like not, not have that bother you. Um, and if you have no strategy to deal with that, then yeah, I, I think giving people money to take Uber is better. I personally, I mean, I think that's a better approach than doing a really junky transit system. Huh. I, I think the best approach would be having a transit system that builds your wealth and connects productive places and makes those places better and has reliable service. Um, and focuses on ridership. But if, if you're just going to do a half approach, save your money and give it to poor people and let them uh, take Uber or figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. Um, I, if you're, if you got time, I have uh, one more topic. I was going to ask you about our, uh, our, our Coliseum or our Grossinger Motors arena, but uh-huh. I think yeah. I, I that's I think that's just kind of a ball and chain around uh, our ankle and probably something we could talk at more length about. So um, I have kind of a quicker one. Uh, what do we do with our mall? <laughs> um, well, I, I think yeah, on both of these, I, I think the answer is the same. Um, you know, there, there's a there's a human psychological reaction that has been well demonstrated, particularly in the investment world. Um, people, when they start to lose, uh, they, 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 they gamble. They, they gamble more when, when they lose than when they're winning. Um, it, it's been shown again and again that uh, if people can make you know, a small amount of money every day in the stock market, uh, they're very content with that. Um, but when they start to lose money, 
they're more willing to, in a sense, gamble to get it back. Um, you know, I'm willing to risk because I don't want to lose. Uh, so what tends to happen when we get into the public investment realm is what we see is that people who have made these investments, uh, whether it's in a mall that's now dying, that has, you know, all this public infrastructure and kind of, you know, we turned our back on our downtown. We turned our back on our mom pa businesses a generation ago. Uh, we went all in with this mall and now the mall's failing and, and it kind of reflects on us as failures. There's this natural instinct to kind of double down on that, to say, um, you know, I refuse to be a failure. I'm going to do whatever it takes. I'm going to put whatever into this needs to happen. And uh, the same thing with the Coliseum. I mean, I, I think you have some investments that you called it a millstone. You know, I, I think there are a lot of people who are going to want to come hell or high water, you know, no matter what it takes, we're in for a penny, in for a pound. Uh, we got to make this thing work. We're committed. I, I think the 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 brave choice today and the courageous choice and, and the choice that we should stand up and loudly applaud is to be able to say no, uh, to be able to recognize the social cost of these investments, uh, to empathize with a society that laments what has happened, uh, laments the choices they have made, to say, this is not a reflection of you. And your failure and, 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 you know, your worth. Uh, but this was a, a thing that we did at a time when it seemed like a good thing to do that we're now smarter than we now realize we shouldn't have done this. And the sad thing is we're gonna have to walk away from these investments. We're gonna, we're gonna have to let them go. And I, I think we, I think we make that easier for ourselves when we do the other things like, the incremental investment and the maintenance of the core downtown, uh, connecting those surrounding neighborhoods, showing progress there, advancement, things getting better. I think it will allow us to walk away from these things where we failed uh, without feeling like failures. But I, I almost feel like, um, you know, you can go to uh, societies that have experienced huge trauma and turmoil uh, where they've had like these uh, reconciliation commissions or what have you, where people go and be able to speak about the 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 things they've suffered from and then you know the 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 things and basically be heard in a public forum and have people document that and listen to it and take it seriously. I, I think we're going to have to, with this whole suburban experiment, as a society, go through a period like that where we say, you know, this mall seemed like a good idea. That Ma and Pa shoe store in the downtown, boy, we 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 hated those people, and we were happy to turn our back on them. But now we wish we had them back, and we're sorry we did this, and we shouldn't have done this, and we shouldn't have uh, let this happen, but we did, and and we forgive ourselves, and we move on, and and we promise not to do this again. Uh, it, that that sounds a little hokey, and that sounds a little like you know, really, Chuck is that? But yeah, I I think we, I think if Detroit had done that twenty years ago. Uh, they could have spared themselves a lot of suffering and a lot of uh, a, a lot of you know difficulty for the people of Detroit, um, and I think they would be better off today having done that. And I, when I look at the mall and I think about its future, I, I feel like that's uh, the, uh, uh, that's the approach we need to take. Well, maybe we can repurpose the public comment section of our city council meetings for that because they're they're already a half hour. <laughs> It's already yeah. a half hour of everyone airing all their grievances about everything. So we can, uh, we can, we can work on that. <laughs> well, I, I, I feel like I, I wrote this thing years ago and, uh, my board at the time hated it. Um, and didn't want me to publish it, but it was about, it was about triage and you know, how we deal with triage. When you look at the, uh, the history of triage on a battlefield, you know, you, you're talking about soldiers, uh, the bravest people out there among us sacrificing their bodies, their lives, their futures, and their dreams, young people, uh, for a cause, whatever that cause is. And so these nurses and doctors would go out and they would be on this battlefield. How do you decide in that circumstance who gets treatment and who doesn't? How do you decide who lives and dies? And what they recognized was that this was, a, this was an emotionally impossible thing to do. You could not, as a kind, compassionate person, make this decision in the heat of the moment. And so what they did is they took it out of the heat of the moment. And they said, 
to be the most compassionate we can, to do the most good, to, to, to help people as much as possible. Here's what we're going to do in these difficult situations. And they essentially made a dispassionate choice that the people who were for sure going to die, and this is a battlefield assessment, we're going to treat with kindness and compassion, but we're going to ease their suffering. The people who are for sure going to live, uh, they may have to suffer a little bit because we're not going to be able to get to them right away, uh, but they're going to live and we're going to be there for them when, the, when things die down and we can get to them. Uh, the people who are in the middle, who maybe will live, maybe will die, depending on what we do in the next 10 minutes, those are the people we're going to devote our time to. And, you know, when we look at cities, the time frames aren't the same as a battlefield, but the mentality is the same. The issue is the same. The things, the emotional trauma we have to go through is the same. And I think if we don't recognize that and understand that these are deeply impactful, human, very human things involving pain and hurt and suffering and loss, uh, we're going to continue to make really bad reactionary decisions on some of these things. And we'll try to prop up the mall by giving Amazon millions of dollars and inviting them in to, you know, resurrect it and create some jobs. And we'll go down this path again. And 20 years from now, we'll be looking going, what, what, did, what did we blow our money on? Like, what did we do? I, I think we have to uh, recognize the pain and deal with that. And then I think good things will come out of that conversation. Yeah, it's it's so it's so fascinating because like some would just consider that to be like utmostly pessimistic, but to be naive or idealistic in the face of you know extreme infrastructure debt and insolvency and like these endless money pits that were you know, dumping operational losses into each year, um, to not recognize that that is a serious, serious issue and to continue on as if, you know, we'll grow our way out of it one day. Uh, you know, that's, it's not going to make anything better. You know, the first step is realizing that there's a serious issue and then, um, you know, taking those steps forward. I, uh, yeah. What what you said is, go ahead. Yeah. Well, I think not recognizing that people are being hurt today, right now, seriously, by our insolvency, by our fiscal problems. And if you look at a place like Detroit, which to me is just a place 20 years ahead of everybody else. I mean, they got started with this experiment before everybody else, and we all copied them. Mm-hmm. They're at the destination. And you look at the suffering that people have gone through in Detroit needlessly, uh, and I think it's a very motivating thing for, for someone like me. Yeah. Well, there was one uh, city council candidate in particular um, who ran and won this year on a strong towns platform and at a debate about the the arena coliseum. Um, she her position was that we should close it. And the moderator of a debate was like, but you can't just do that. You, you have to keep it. And she said, it's losing money every single year. It's not projected to ever be profitable. Keeping it open is costing us more money than just closing it down would be like it is. And, uh, so it's, it's, I'm happy to hear that she was, uh, she was, whoever that is, is a hero. She's a, whoever that is, is a hero. And I'm serious that the, the courage to be able to stand up and say that, uh, that person to me is, is a hero. Those are the people that I deeply admire. Well, she'll be, uh, her name's Donna Boland. She'll be very happy to hear you say that. I told her I was talking to you today. So, um, well, uh, unfortunately we're at the end of our time. Um, you know, recently on your podcast, you've mentioned being very excited to talk about some celebrities in the circles that you work in. Well, uh, that's exactly how I've been. I I felt when you said you would, uh, come on this show. (laughs) So (laughs) thanks. Thanks again. I even told my mom last week, I was like (laughs) how excited I was and she nodded politely and, uh, said she was proud of me, (laughs) even though she didn't really understand what I was talking about, but, um, that's cool. (laughs) You know, I'll take it. It made my mom proud. Um, but so, uh, before we wrap, can you tell people about where to find out more about strong towns? Clearly the website, um, and uh, including how to find out where the book tour is coming through whenever you start that? Yeah, absolutely. Strongtowns.org is our website. And uh, you can go there and find, you know, articles, new articles every day, uh, new podcasts three times a week. Uh, We're putting out a lot of content, Uh, you know, get it, share it. 
Um, the whole idea is to expand this conversation. We've got on that site, there's a local conversations page. Uh, you can check there and see if there's someone around you talking strong towns and, and get together with them and talk about how you uh, make your place into a strong town. There's also the events page. That's uh, where we've got all the book tour information, the future places we're going to be uh, sharing this message and uh, and going out. The book tour starts uh, in September. The book comes out October 1st. It's called Strong Towns, A Bottom-Up Revolution to Rebuild American Prosperity. You can get that on strongtowns.org as well or, or any place you buy books, including your, your local bookstore. Uh, we're going to try to hit uh, most of the country. And I've got nine weeks of book tour in the fall. And what we found is that the number of requests and the number of places we need to get to is probably going to create another uh, nine or more weeks in, uh, in 2020 as well. So we will be, um, I want to say we'll be in Illinois, uh, I, I think in November is when we're looking at being in and around your area. Um, and so uh, keep in touch and check that out. And uh, hopefully we can we can meet up with as many people listening to this as possible. Yeah, thanks. And I'll put links to a lot of that information in the show notes here. Awesome. Um, well, Chuck, it was delightful to speak with you. I'll keep doing uh, what I can to build a strong blooming to normal. And thanks for the thanks, inspiration. Man. Hey, thank you so much. Very nice to chat with you. And, and it was nice to chat with you the other day when I was in Peoria. And I uh, appreciate everything that you're doing, not only share our message, but to just be involved and, and be a, a, a voice in the community. I, I, hope, you, uh, I hope you never stop. <laughs> thanks a lot. Yeah, take care, Tyson. Bye-bye. Bye. want to thank our sponsors one more time normal gadgets where you can get your gadgets back to normal again play normal esports the only place in town where you can walk in and hear music from an obscure game like undertale if you don't know about undertale check it out one of my favorite games ever was thrilled to come in and hear the music from it some wonderful video game music and last but not least is little beaver brewery where you can go and find some of the finest craft beers in town over down south by the big gold gym and we are done. There we go. All right. Yeah. We're good to go anytime. In fact, the train is just going by. Can you hear that? Yes. That's uh, literally like right outside the office window. <laughs> so <laughs> it'll be, if you want to wait, it'll, it'll, it'll going to come through and then, uh, Go by. I don't know what it is, but sometimes it's a coal. Usually, it's coal train going by. So, we might just, rumble for a while. One of the great things that Normal did recently was to they got approved to not have the trains have to sound their horns when they're coming through town. So, oh okay, oh that, that was a really big win. Yeah, that's helpful. Because I went to university there, and in the dorms, uh, you know, the kids would be trying to sleep, and they'd come by it. 8 a.m., you know, crack yep. of dawn for college yep. students.